flashes, huh? What's your favorite scary movie? Um, not that one. <laughs> Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, I choose my friends for their good looks and my enemies for their good intellects. We're talking, faithfulness is merely laziness. And we're talking, the remains of a really remarkable ugliness. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, pleasure is nature's sign of approval. When we're happy, we're always good. When we're good, we're not always happy. <laughs> this movie is so quotable. Oh, there's so many quotes in this movie. I, uh, half of my notes are quotes, which is interesting because that's not usually the case when we cover an older film for me. This is true. This is true. But everyone, in case you didn't know what we're discussing, um, we are discussing 1945's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. Minor quibble with the title. Shouldn't it be The Portrait of Dorian Gray? I thought it was always called The Portrait of Dorian Gray, so... <laughs> but I'm not the best, like, judge for this, because I have not read the book, and this is actually my... Uh, I think it's my introduction to this property outside oh. of Penny Dreadful, because I think Dorian Gray was in Penny right. Dreadful, right? Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with the story, I just never saw any iteration of it. Okay, that's fair. Yes, uh, I read the book with the Horror Queers Book Club group last year, and then I watched this movie, and then I watched the 2009 Ben Barnes movie, and <gasps> um, I don't uh, think it's going to surprise anyone which version I preferred. I'm, okay, I'm really excited to hear about this, because when I worked at Blockbuster, there was a whole wall of that Dorian Gray one with Ben Barnes, but I just think that Ben Barnes is such a bland actor that I just never yeah. picked up. <laughs> yeah. That movie is 90% performance by his hair and then 10% his lack of charisma. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, before we get too much further into this, um, let's bring in our guest, who I know was very excited to discuss this film. Uh, everyone, she is a queer Brooklyn-based screenwriter and actor who is the co-writer and co-lead of Perfectly Good Moment, an upcoming psychosexual revenge thriller about a toxic age gap relationship. Ooh. She is also the co-host of Don't Be Crazy, a podcast that discusses, oh, I love this, what makes certain movies good or bad. Please Ooh. welcome Amanda Jane Stern. Hello, hello. I am so excited to talk about Picture of Dorian Gray, and I am a huge fan of this book. I do agree. I have always thought, why isn't it Portrait? But I think, mm -hmm. and I don't know why. I really don't. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. It's bizarre. Peek behind the curtain for our listeners. So we had originally had a different film programmed in this slot, mm -hmm. but we had to switch it last minute uh, when we found out that it wasn't available anywhere to stream and that the DVD was hard to come by. Mm -hmm. And... You still, when we told you, you know, oh, we ha we have to switch your movie a week out, um, you jumped at the chance to cover this. And I mean, <laughs> I'm curious and I'm happy about it, but why? <laughs> so, and I mentioned this right before we started recording. This is actually a movie that I had shied away from watching for <laughs> the longest time. I had seen the Ben Barnes version because oh, that no. came out in my peak <laughs> teenage years. Yep. Wow. Hmm. It's, there we go. It's, it's a thing. Um, you know, I watched it the once. You're right. It's a lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> so much hair. I also once flirted with Ben Barnes at an event. So, <laughs> uh, I, had I mean, to. here's the thing. He is deliciously Beautiful. good looking, but oh, yeah. just something not popping on the screen. Anyway. <laughs> oh, he's gorgeous. But yeah, also wrong for Dorian Gray. But so I yes. first read this book when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and I became obsessed with it. And not just this book, I became obsessed with Oscar Wilde. I. Ooh. I think to some degree, it's also he's this very, very loquacious queer man. And I had not come out yet, but I talk a lot. 
And I, <laughs> Kindred spirits. I it was something that I kind of, to some degree, identified with. And it was a way for me to come to terms with my sexuality by reading this book so right. many times. I, I think that's part of it. And I just, I loved it. I like, it's also, it plays with gothic. Like the mm. original movie we were supposed to do falls into the gothic vein. I absolutely love gothic stories. So I think it's a lot of that. Well, I think also, I mean, again, like, you know, I've been familiar with this story for years, for most of my life, without ever having actually read it or seen it. But I also think, like, it, it's every gay man's worst nightmare, right? Like, growing <laughs> well, old. <laughs> oh, I was going to say uh, having a portrait that you have to protect at all times. But yeah, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because mm -hmm. on one hand, you're getting exactly what you want, right? You get to be youthful and beautiful forever. But then on the dark side, it's all the things that you have to see about yourself reflected back to you every time you look at this motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, and I think too, I mean, again, I was doing like a little bit of research on Oscar Wilde. I don't think I realized how short his like run was of yeah. writing plays mm -hmm. and you know this being his only novel it was it was like over the course of 10 years yeah and then he died really sadly well actually let me get on that too so everyone in case like just really quick primer on oscar wilde you know he is um one of the most popular playwrights of london from the early 1890s but yes as amanda already said he was a queer man and in 1895 he pissed off this guy named the marquess of queensberry who was the father of lord alfred douglas a man with whom wilde had a sexual relationship with oh so much more than that well go ahead by, by oh, all that means, was but... his long time that was the love of his life mm-hmm uh, Lord Alfred Bosey Douglas. And actually, if reading Dorian Gray, that's really what Dorian looks yes. like. Yeah. Right. That's what I was going to ask. It's uh -huh. reading about Douglas. I was like, this kind of sounds like Dorian Gray to me. Well, what's funny <laughs> is they met the year that he wrote Dorian Gray, but I don't know if they met after he'd already written the book or hmm. before, but he definitely might have been influenced to maybe change Dorian's appearance right. based on Bosey. Like when he was imprisoned, he wrote this, the love that dare not speak its name, all to both. It is like that man was the love of his life. But that man also sounded like a bit of an asshole. Oh, totally. <laughs> He's a lord. <laughs> well, be, be, because, uh, so, hey, so, so basically this Marques guy, you know, Douglas's dad, he leaves a card on Wilde's door that says, for Oscar Wilde proposed sodomite. He misspelled sodomite. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and Wilde could have just let things go, but yes. Douglas encouraged him to fight because he always fought with his father. And... Um, I've been, I binged, uh, both seasons of the Gilded Age earlier this year, at, or I'm sorry, late last year, because we're in 2024 now, and Oscar Wilde does make an appearance in it, but I was kind of like, oh, because these people were just rich and bored, so all they could do was just fight with other socialites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. But anyway, so he could have let it go, but Wilde sued the Marquess for libel and lost because it was really easy when detectives started searching for um, evidence of his um, buggery. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, he really was doing a lot of this stuff that, that, that he deemed libelous. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the case against Wilde was made and he was found guilty of sodomy and gross indecency in one of mm -hmm. the first recorded celebrity trials. And he would go to prison for two years, getting out in May of 1897. Uh, he promptly fled to France and never returned to the UK, but he would Oof. spend the last three years of his life impoverished and in exile mm -hmm. before dying from meningitis at, in the year 1900 at the age of 46. Because in prison, he was sentenced to hard labor, mm -hmm. which was God actually really hard. And he was... You know, a 
He was a dandy. He was. He drank a lot. He he wasn't like doing jogs and, and lifting weights. The man mm. lived it up. He was a soft boy. Oh, totally. But Okay, but when you look at him, though, like he had a hulking presence. Oh, yeah. Huge. Large man. But I mean, he was basically an aristocrat. You know, he mm-hmm. yeah. he he wrote for a living. So if you suddenly had to go out and smash rocks all day or something, <laughs> two years is going to wear you down. And he was a popular writer. Well, and it's interesting because you can find because they, they found like the full unedited transcripts of his trial. I want to say relatively. I mean, when 20, I say recently, I think it was 20 um, 11 or 2010 or 11 because Moises Kaufman made a, a documentary play of it. And I Correct. saw it when they performed it in um, Boston. I'd already oh, read a lot of those transcripts, but yes. Well, but the, <laughs> even reading it, I was like, wow, he really, I mean, that, I, I thought to myself, he was really asking for it with some of his replies to these questions, but yeah. he, he was just very cocky. Like he thought he was going to get out of this and he mm-hmm. did not. Yeah. He, because of his status and his fame and popularity, he thought that he'd be fine, but he'd already been facing, you know, these allegations for years. People were yeah. making these comments. So had he just, had he not sued Bozy's dad, Yeah, which was just such a bad idea. Well, his friends told him, dude, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Because like any gossip or rumor, it's better to just not address it and let yep. it die out, right? But instead, he's, uh, yeah, he, he strikes me as one of those men who would realize, oh, it's a court of popular opinion, so I need to go out there. Mm-hmm. He's probably also thinking this might help my career if I'm in the public's eye. Maybe they'll buy mm-hmm. my stuff. But it sounded like... He was full of pride. Oh, definitely a little cocky. Well, I, I mentioned this to Joe yesterday because I was like, I would love to see like a dramatization of the, these events. But have you seen the 90s film Wild? I think it's Stephen Frears playing Oscar Wilde. It, yes, it's Stephen Fry. And Fry. isn't Jude Law who plays Bozy? Yes, right. it yep, is. I, I have seen it. Do you <laughs> like course. it? <sighs> oh. Um, oh. No, no, it's not. Okay. It's not that it is a bad movie. It is a movie that you will like if this is a subject that you are obsessed with. Okay. If you're just coming at it from a perspective of, oh, I'm going to watch a movie, then it, it's not going to be the best thing you're going to see. Uh-huh. That being said, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, subject that I was clearly obsessed with. So you were the target audience. <laughs> I was the target audience. I had like during I had uh, Oscar Wilde quotes written on everything in the early days of social media. So you're a super fan, is what you're saying. I was, yeah, I would have been like a Tumblr fangirl of him. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Well, okay, so as I said, he only wrote one novel, and that was The Picture of Dorian Gray. This novel did start as a novella that Wilde submitted to J.M. Stoddart, an editor at Lippincott's Monthly Magazine. And it was to be published in the magazine, but not before Stoddart had his publisher, George Lippincott, um, edit the fuck out of it. (laughs) He said, In its present condition, there are a number of things an innocent woman would make an exception to. Oh, okay. (laughs) Fearing that the story was indecent, Stoddart deleted around 500 words without Wilde's knowledge prior to publication. And among the pre-publication deletions were um, passages alluding to homosexuality and to homosexual desire. They don't just allude. Well, yeah. (laughs) But, like, it wasn't saying, like, he fucked him in the ass. Well, probably the equivalent of that. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good in-between. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I can explain why I can tell you this. Go, go ahead. Well, um, and I'm sure you're getting to this into, in the production history of the book, but in 2011, the 
undoctored manuscript, mm-hmm. the original version without any edits, was published. Right. And I own it. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> yeah, it was actually my, my brother got it for me as a high school graduation gift. Now, <laughs> when you're, so reading that, did it, like when you finished it, did it leave you with a different feeling than reading the edited version? Like, yes, it is definitely different enough. Sybil Vane is oh. less important. Her brother is not an original character. Oh, that's not mm-hmm. surprising. And I'm very excited to talk about this when we get to the movie and talk about Gladys. But um, oh yeah, <laughs> the, the whole thing is, is Basil actually completely openly admits that he is deeply in love with Dorian. Yes, so his obviously. Death, his yeah. death hits so much more because he is so in love with this man. Right. And and there is an entire it's it's not just alluded to in the original book. He flat out says it. Oh, okay. Yeah, Basil tells Lord Henry how he worships Dorian mm-hmm. and begs him not to take away the one person that makes my life absolutely lovely to me. Mm-hmm. Every man in this text, barring James and like, you know, some random manservant we maybe meet later on, <laughs> everyone is so queer in this text. Yep. Well, I mean, he did write a play later called The Importance of Being Earnest, and Earnest was uh, Victorian slang for gay. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that also has a great film adaptation. It does. I love it. That's the Reese with the Spoon one, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but on top of the homosexual stuff, they also removed any references to the fictional book title Le Secret de Raoul and its author. And they also removed all uses of the word mistress when referencing Gray's lover, Sybil Vane and Hetty Merton. So hmm. when it went into this Lipcott's monthly magazine, it was published in, in full, quote unquote, as the first 100 pages in both the American and British editions of the July 1890 issue. 1891, he releases a full novel, and Wilde retained Stoddart's edits, as we've mentioned, um, but he made some of his own. So while expanding the text from 13 to 20 chapters, uh, he added the book's famous preface. Other revisions included changes in character dialogue, um, more scenes and chapters. He added Sybil Vane's brother, James Vane. Again, more homosexual stuff with Basil. Um, <laughs> the original typescript submitted to Lippincott's monthly magazine, uh, House at UCLA, had been largely forgotten, except by professional Wilde scholars, again, until, as Amanda said, uh, 2011, when they uh, published the annotated, uncensored edition. Upon its release, though, some critics accused the book of being wicked. And Wilde <laughs> told them, because again, the sins that he commits, at least in the version that was released back then, you don't know what they were. You could just yep. pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Wilde said, and I quote, The sins that Dorian Gray commits are the sins that you, the reader, bring to him. So if you are reading homosexuality and his sins, that might be because you're a little bit gay. <laughs> wow just stir in the pot yeah see he would have been such a great tweeter <laughs> oh my god he would have been trolling I so know. badly he really would but in the novel uh henry wharton paraphrases many of the sentiments from walter pater's studies of the history of the renaissance and you see pater was a don at oxford when wilde was a student there and so he introduced him to the theory of aestheticism which was shorthand art for art's sake but this basically means that true art is utterly independent of any and all social values and utilitarian function be that didactic moral or political so wilde lived by this philosophy but the interesting thing is that he was critiquing that philosophy by the time he got around to writing dorian gray right which of course we can see in the character mm-hmm. of lord henry yeah i mean because he, he's just a mouthpiece yeah. for pater at that point yeah 
wonderfully played by George Sanders. Perfect casting. I love that man. Man, Honestly. he is an asshole in this movie. No, he plays he plays so a cad so well. I have this. Yes, I have this weird thing. It's been going on for for over a year now. It's my fiance and I. It's happened to us multiple times. We'll watch a movie. Mm-hmm. He'll come on screen. And we'll go, oh, my God, this guy is so good. What have we seen him in? We really like him. <laughs> and then I look him up and I go, oh, yeah, it's George Sanders. We've seen him in this and this and this mm-hmm. and this. And now we finally know, ah, George Sanders. We love that guy. But it took us a For while. Character actor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, oh, it's Shere Khan from The Jungle Book. <laughs> well, there is that as well. That That's voice, true. right? Oh, God, that voice. That voice could... Do bad things yeah. to me. <laughs> Although we have covered him before, Joe, because he was in Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I have listened to your Rebecca episode. It's a white lady in crisis movie. <laughs> it totally I love those. Is. I made yes. one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he also won an Oscar for his performance in All About Eve. Mm-hmm. Yes. The one Betty Davis did not win an Oscar for that? No, wasn't that that wasn't that your split? Because that was also Sunset Boulevard here. Yes. So it's Betty yes. Davis and um Gloria Swanson. Thank you. And they obviously powerhouse fucking performances. It got split and it's it's some totally random. Like nobody remembers the mm-hmm. movie kind of deal, right? Yep. Uh, everyone go listen to our episode on Baby Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of shit posters, celebrity shit posters. Oh boy. Um, okay, so the film adaptation of The Picture of Dorian Gray was directed by Albert Lewin, and this movie was his baby. In fact, he didn't even view directing as a career. He just wanted to bring Oscar Wilde's only novel to life. Wow. He was also very deaf. Um, So he wore a hearing aid, which was controlled by a panel that he kept clipped on his waistcoat. And if he wanted to hear what you're saying, he would turn the volume up. And if he didn't want to hear what you were saying, he would mute the volume and just walk away. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I need that for parties. I should point out a lot of this information is coming from the commentary on this Blu-ray with Angela Lansbury herself. Yes. Yes, queen. Gem. (laughs) Spill it. (laughs) Oh, my God. So they were casting for a year to try to find Dorian Gray. Um, Lewin's version of Gray was not what Oscar Wilde described. Wilde describes Dorian Gray as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed sort of Adonis who who is hysterically emotional. Oh. He's boyish. Yes. Right, Because it emphasizes youth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lewin saw Gray as a very deadpan with an icy um, interior. Actor and screenwriter Michael Dine was considered for the part of Gray, but he didn't get it. However, he's the reason that Angela Lansbury got hired, because he got her into MGM, and that's how she met the casting director, Billy O'Grady, and he introduced her this same day to both Albert Lewin and George Cukor. So she got her parts in Gaslight and Dorian Gray on this day, while wow. <laughs> this guy just brought her into the casting director. Wow. Damn. Gaslight. Yeah, Gaslight's her first movie. Gaslight is great. And she would get an Oscar nomination for both Gaslight and Dorian Gray. Not when, but she would get those nominations. I mean, Gaslight is is Ingrid Bergman's movie. That monologue at the end, the, but I'm crazy. How could I help you? I am crazy, unless I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of Lansbury, this, this was her third film role, and in what and she plays the role of Sybil Vane. But mm-hmm. again, this is different too because yep. in Wilde's book, Sybil was a Shakespearean actress who gave up her art for love, which right. goes against the principle of aestheticism, which is why Dorian like didn't love who she really was. He loved her surface, her art. But Lewin wanted Sybil to be a true innocent in the film. Yeah, she she comes off as a lot more calculating in the book. She's not that innocent. Um, vibe. 
I'm curious, Amanda, do you have a preference between the, the, those two versions of Sybil, the book version or this movie version? Um, I think you kind of feel a little more for this version, mm-hmm, and that's partially because mm-hmm. it's Angela Lansbury and you love her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's sweeter. But the Dorians are so different that it, it's one of those things that I always just kind of brush past her anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. I am so much more invested in his relationship with Basil and Henry mm-hmm. and how that one is corrupting him. Like, and, and a lot of that is also this movie trying to make it a straighter story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in the book, he's not in love with her. At all. That's mm-hmm. not what it is. It's it's about her, the aesthetics of her art. She is a great actress. You know, I I like that. But the book is so gay. Well, And this was 1945. And I will say, and we'll talk about this in depth when we get to the plot, but like the scene where he tests her, I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, oh my yeah. God, did Neil LeBute write this? Like, is this in the company of men we're talking about right now? Oh, I almost teared up because I was just like, this poor fucking woman. It oh, is yeah. vicious. I mean, it's it's the ultimate beard caught in gay men's games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, and- it's vicious. He does not do that in the book. Good. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, cinematically, fantastic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, But who they did eventually find a cast as Dorian Gray was Herd Hatfield, who was a very humble man, according to Angela Lansbury. Um, In fact, he thought it was embarrassing that he was playing someone who was supposed to be the most gorgeous man alive because he didn't see himself this way. Hmm. Because of this role, though, he got typecast in these types of roles. uh, Beautiful narcissists. And (laughs) he plays it well. It didn't ruin his career, but it ruined career opportunities for him. And Lansbury actually makes a point to say that he has a lot in his life has a lot in common with that of Anthony Perkins. And she yeah. says specifically in that they were both nailed by their most famous roles, you know, Dorian mm-hmm. Gray for Hatfield and, and Norman Bates for Anthony Perkins. I also think it's because they were both gay. Yep. I mean, I was well. looking him up, never married. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so that was the thing. You know, I saw, okay, he never married, but I couldn't find like an official thing that said, yes, Heard Hatfield no. was gay. But I found plenty of articles that was like, but everyone knew he was yeah. gay. Everyone knew. Yeah, there were plenty yeah. of, of things that are like, uh, oh, okay, I see what this is code for. Yeah, like they might as well have just written about his longtime companion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I do think it's interesting, actually. Yes, in the book, blonde, blue-eyed, because those are symbols of of youth. We have this idea that blonde people look younger or whatever, Mm -hmm. or at least a lot of classic literature does. But because this is a black and white film, Heard is so striking looking that it Mm -hmm. sets him apart from everybody else. That he kind of looks like he stepped out of a silent film. The way that, you know, his hair and his eyelashes and eyebrows juxtapose against how pale his face is. Okay, but I, that's makeup, right? Because it looks like it's makeup caked on his face sometimes. Partially, because other photos of him are still, he is striking. He yeah. is. He's absolutely gorgeous. I think they may also be giving him, this is going to sound a little bit weird, it almost seems like they're giving him a bit more halo lighting, which is the kind of mm. lighting we would normally give leading ladies. I think you're right. I think they do. They light him differently than they light everyone else. So he mm. has that like 1920s, 1930s. Yeah. Well, on this film, um, this is a direct quote from Hatfield. He says, The picture of Dorian Gray didn't make me popular in Hollywood. It was too odd, too avant-garde, too ahead of its time. The decadence, the hints of bisexuality, and so on, it made me a leper. Nobody knew I had a sense of humor, and people wouldn't even have lunch with me. 
Hmm. Aww. So, but again, according to Lansbury, like I mean, she she remained friends with him for a very long time, yes. and like you know, he lived a full life. So I just think he was just very dedicated to his work and would have liked other opportunities than the ones he was given. And that he was sure. maybe a bit of a goofy guy. That'd be really hard, right? Because this movie doesn't give him the opportunity to show a ton of range, right? In some ways, it's very constricted because that's who Dorian Gray is. Mm-hmm. So if you considered yourself a funny person, or even if you wanted to be considered for comedies. If you got typecast because of this movie, which was meant to make you a star, and then it kind of doesn't make you a star, and it restricts your career opportunities, that's rough. Yeah, it's like he needed the uh, Daniel Day-Lewis two-puncher of having that and then something mm. wildly different come out the same weekend. The same time. Like he has <laughs> yeah. a Room with a View and My Beautiful Laundrette. Vastly mm-hmm. different performances. Right. Yeah. Well, so back to the production, though. We do have another tyrannical director on our hands. Um, I will say, Andrew Lansbury says about Lewin, like, he was a jolly little man. He was unserious and a joy to be around. (laughs) However, juxtapose that with this fact. Um, When directing his actors, Lewin wanted to hear every line in the movie the way he heard it in his head. Which means they did so many takes, sometimes over 100 takes per scene. Oh, shit. And Lansbury even says, but, you know, he was deaf and he had this hearing aid machine. And so I sometimes wonder if that was distorting how he was hearing people talk. And so they were doing it the way he wanted to, but he wasn't hearing it that way. That is entirely possible because you also have to remember 1945. So this would have been shot probably in 1944. You know, the advent of sound had only really just recently come in, like in the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. So... I I wonder, you know, the mixture of the advent of sound, but then also his hearing aid. Yeah, there could have been some interesting complications there. Well, it's not just the hearing. So on top of that, you know, there wasn't any like original thought that could be done with the actors because because he had a very specific idea in mind. So yep. this did drive Hatfield and Sanders um, kind of nuts. I don't blame them. But Lewin was the same with facial expressions. So he would not let Heard Hatfield move his face, even saying like, again, in a shot, move the left side of your lip up just a hair. So oh, he was that meticulous oh, with how boy. with what the actors looked like and were doing and saying constantly. And so because of this, the production was scheduled for 52 shooting days, but went over 100. Oh, <laughs> boy. Wow. And it did go way over budget. Yeah, <laughs> yeah imagine. It would. <laughs> but, but Louis B. Mayer over at MGM, he indulged Lewin for all of this because he thought he was making a masterpiece. <laughs> Which, to be honest, he is. Yeah, it, multiple got Oscar nods. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, another fun fact, the composer on this film was Herbert Stothart, who um, is the Oscar-winning composer for The Wizard of Oz. Oh. There you go. But from the beginning, the Breen office, a.k.a. the Hayes Code <sighs> office, oh, we um, <laughs> they were alert <laughs> to the story's homosexual content. And in a pre-production memo uh, dated September 13th of 1943, insisted that, for obvious reasons, it will be absolutely essential that there will be no possibility of any inference of sex perversion anywhere in this story. <laughs> Like, what are we doing? Do you know the fucking story? And that is why Gladys exists. <laughs> God, Gladys is such a non I, I know. get why Donna oh Reed did not want to yeah. do this movie. Because <laughs> who, who cares about Gladys? No She's one cares nobody. about She's not in the, the book. The movie yeah. forgets about her. 
Yeah, because the movie only adds her so that they can give Basil someone else to pin mm-hmm. his, like, Dorian pinings on. Oh, no, yeah. Gladys will be so sad. No, I am so sad because I am deeply in love with you and look what has happened. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the changes that they make based yep. on Breen's recommendation, right? Well, and so hey. the filmmakers complied with Breen's recommendation. Of course. And upon its release, the film received the production code seal of approval. Uh, it was even rated A-2 by the Legion of Decency. Which sounds like a super villain organization. No, it's yeah, a Legion of Doom. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, wow. But the, the Legion of Decency is a Catholic group founded yep. in 1934 by Archbishop of Cincinnati, John T. McNicholas. And their job was to uh, identify objectionable content in motion pictures on behalf of Catholic audiences. Well, the whole, the Hayes Code was all based on, that whole group was also Catholic. It was based on mm-hmm. Catholic morality rules. Catholics, man. Uh, Aren't they fun? (sighs) Here's the thing. They're not all bad, as we've said numerous times. They're not all bad. But this is definitely one of those things where, Mm -hmm. like, can you imagine what Wilde would say? Oh, you're trying to impose moral clauses onto my art. He would tell them to fuck right off. I mean, personally, I love the years when the code existed, but was not enforced. And you have that mm-hmm. 30 to 33 wild time of movies where they're like, great, <laughs> fuck it. We're going to do everything. Oh, everything. They got away with everything. everything. And it's like some of those films are glorious. Well, it's because Hayes was still in charge of the code and, and Breen took over in 34. And, yeah. you know, Joseph That's Breen and his... Ends. Iron yeah. Fist right there. Right? Well, you know, actually... This I learned this in college. The last movie he saw in theaters before he died, The Sound of Music. He loved it. Uh. It was so moral. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I love those Nazis. <laughs> I do love The Sound of Music, but yeah, like sure. Nazis, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so, but fun fact, though. So after the film was actually in release around the country, the Legion of Decency wrote to Bream, suggesting that they had all missed something. <laughs> yeah, you fucking did. Based upon a few perceptive <laughs> film reviews and public response, the Legion now realized that there were portions in the picture which could be interpreted as conveying implications of homosexuality, which... No. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Again, Portions of the film could be interpreted as conveying implications mm-hmm. of homosexuality. Oh words, words, Which words. portions? The entire movie? <laughs> every every scene with Basil? Every scene with Henry? And Bream was shocked by this. You know, He defended his office's approval of the film as a psychological drama about the wages of sin. And as this exchange amply demonstrates, this kind of connotative homosexuality was, and for many still is, in the eye of the beholder. So he's like throwing it back yeah. at him like, well, if you see gay stuff in this, you're gay. <laughs> Right, you want to see it. And I guess to some degree that is true, and I don't know if you guys did this when you were younger, but you'd watch things and anything you could pick out and be like, "Uh uh-huh, it's queer, it's totally queer, Mm -hmm. because I... I totally did that. You know, it was like, Amanda, we still do that. We do it every course. week. I was like, we do this. Yeah, that's our job. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. Like, I'm I'm watching movies late at night, hoping my mom doesn't walk in because I'm hoping for the slightest glimpse yep. of a queer subplot. I remember the first time I put a queer movie on that I knew was going to be explicitly queer mm-hmm. at my grandmother's. Oh. It, was, it was playing on the Sundance channel, and I was just like, I've been trying to find this movie. I'm watching it. And what was like, it? Mm-hmm. It's called Love Songs. It's a French musical. Okay. Where everybody's bisexual. Naturally. It is French. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that I've seen like a hundred times. I could quote it kind of thing. 
Oh, nice. Nice. And we should note that, Trace, you you were pulling some of that information from Monsters in the Closet by, of course, our, our friend. Mr. Benshoff. Yes, thank there you. There we go. But yeah, so for marketing for this movie, they made a poster of Grey's eyes looking into the darkness. Um, there was a photograph of George Sanders out of character <laughs> and the most meaningless tagline, Youth's Adventure in Living. And that is how they sold it. But people went anyway. I mean, uh, but, but then uh, so it was a hit in New York and L.A. and they expanded its release. And only then were they like, OK, let's sell it as a horror movie. And then the <sighs> new tagline was man by day, beast by night. Women bring your smelling salts. What? Like, what? Why are women being referenced at all? This movie is <laughs> dripping with men that energy. That would be a better tagline for Jekyll and Hyde. Right? Yes. But that's the other mm. thing, though, because this was the highest grossing horror film that MGM had made up until that point the other being dr jekyll and mr hyde so right. i wonder they if they just, just borrowed the that tagline, tagline. <laughs> um val luton saw this movie and he did not care for it um he wrote a letter <laughs> to his mother saying that lewin made a lurid horror movie out of a literary classic wow. that is interesting because i like i for one would love to see his take on this material because I do think it would actually be quite a bit more atmospheric and it would mm -hmm. leave more to the imagination, even though this movie really doesn't actually show us much. Nope. Well, so Lansbury chimes in and so says, well, I think um, Luton was probably jealous because he never would have had the kind of budget this film had. Oh, God, no, that, no. He yeah. was making B-movies. I, mm -hmm. I do love cat people. Oh, my yeah. God. So good. But also, yeah, very atmospheric. Mm -hmm. Well, Yeah. But yeah, so this was released on March 3rd of 1945. It made more money overseas than in America, but it was a hit in America. So we're looking at uh, the budget reportedly is a little under $2 million and it makes almost $3 million worldwide. So it, it yeah. is a hit for them. But yeah, I, mean, I don't feel like uh, you hear this movie talked about that much uh, when, yeah. when discussing like, you know, classic horror films of the 30s and 40s. You don't. There are so many that you don't really hear talked about. Mm -hmm. And then when you actually start looking into them, you realize how important they were to film history or the right, horror right. genre i mean even to to mention the movie we were originally going to do this week like that one is super important and nobody talks about it mm -hmm. yeah i'm sorry but i didn't name it but it was oh. the uninvited <laughs> the original yeah. one though not the remake of tale of two sisters <laughs> yeah yeah and that like that was the first movie where the the haunted house ghost movie where it actually is ghosts and not the scooby-doo you know butler in a mask they're not metaphors for something in that movie either or they're, they're, they're like, like the innocence where it's like well are there ghosts or they're not ghosts or the haunting i guess but those are all later those are all the 60s right, 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 right. that's 60 and 63 mm -hmm. yeah because they're partially drawing on the mm -hmm. uninvited exactly there you go but um, yeah, I mean, I, I pulled the reviews because we got a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, an average score of 8 out of 10. But, you know, could, reviews at the time were fine. They were fine. It wasn't like glowing, but it wasn't scathing. It was like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, that definitely seems like after the fact reviews, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think a lot of Rotten Tomatoes stuff for things like this, they're yeah. very much, um, hey, I got a blog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, we matter too. Uh, oh, yeah, no, we're in that group. But <laughs> I, I, I have a column that's part of that group too. Oh, no. <laughs> we're doing our best. We're trying to uplift these movies. <laughs> Hey, the average score is 8 out of 10, so it's fine. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah it's not bad. But, um, all right, so that's really all I got. Nothing too juicy about the production, but I think all that backstory is still fun. Um, but, Joe, what happens in this movie? This two-hour movie? I was going to say, <laughs> that runtime is a little bit shocking. Mm -hmm. I, but I think, and we'll talk about this a lot, but, like, 
Gladys's uselessness makes the runtime feel more egregious. Yes. Mm -hmm. You could just cut her out. It would make no difference. I know. Yeah. You could cut her out because she's not in the book. So who cares? There, There's definitely some pacing stuff. But part of this, I think, is also a contemporary perspective where we look at it and say, ooh, shouldn't you have edited this with a slightly firmer hand? And the reality is, is we didn't always do that with movies back in like the 40s 50s 60s i'm glad you mentioned that yeah so like 2024 mentality compared to 1945 mentality because um the film historian and critic who's on this commentary with lansbury asked her like do you think people in the 40s picked up on the homosexual subtext in both the book and the movie Ooh. and she says no she says no i don't think people picked up on that mm. <laughs> interesting i mean it was used at his trial the book was yeah. used at his trials yeah, I I wonder how much of this is like, if you know, you know, wink, wink. Mm -hmm. And then there were probably people who kind of like what you were talking about, Amanda, when you were looking for queer content and just kind of seeking it out actively. I yeah. imagine that there's that, but also from the fear mongering side, right, where they're constantly on the prowl. It's the way we treat, you know, like, oh, let's ban books because they could be pedophilic to children or they're going to groom them or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, mm -hmm. no, you're really looking for every little thing to try to use that as an excuse. Yeah. And I, I think it, it might also be the thing where they're as I was mentioning in Victorian England, when, when Wilde was writing, that there was a whole world of, of slang and code mm -hmm. words that gay men used. This kind of glossary does not exist historically that I found for women. Um, okay. And I think that's partially because there was just this pervading idea that huh, doesn't it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. so women, could, women can't it, like yeah. other women. That's ridiculous. Women don't have sexual exactly. desires. So you could kind of like flirt around it more because no one was thinking it was a thing whereas right. there's this idea of you know buggery which is yes. one of the words but there's an entire just dictionary basically of words that you only knew if you were a gay man right like earnest and i think even if a movie like this is coming out a lot of the dialogue in this was pulled from the book mm -hmm. so there probably are still those words that like mean you know if else. you know yeah, that is what I was gonna say though. Like a lot of the dialogue in this feels like oh, it, yes. it's it's it, it's prose from a novel, mm -hmm. which it is. <laughs> yeah, which I think is why we have so many quotes because Wilde is really good with words. I mean, sometimes he's a little wordy, but he's very very good with his prose, and that makes for captivating dialogue. Even if sometimes this does feel almost more literature as opposed mm -hmm. to cinematic. I think right. that's what makes this a hard one to adapt. Mm -hmm. is that you you just want to use the dialogue so much because it is so beautiful yeah. well and i don't want to like like we don't have to spend so much time like comparing this version to that 2009 version but <laughs> I, I i think i think it's an r-rated film so mm -hmm. it, it mm -hmm. goes in on like the lurid like sexuality of it but i guess it misses something else <laughs> yep yeah i agree with you amanda i think it does go into it too much you know i it's one of the things i expected when i put on the newer version because they could get away with it they knew that mm -hmm. they weren't going to be censored because showing you know ben barnes kissing another man or having an orgy where it's shot like a music video you can absolutely get away with that now it's actually considered pretty tame so watching it i was just like oh see you're showing it and i'm actually less interested in it yeah. letting me imagine it was way more effective also the things that like his sins, when you really think about the book, his sins are not sleeping with men. 
Mm-hmm. That's not the sin. The sin is what he does to literally destroy people's lives. The sins yes. are all of his going to the opium dens. Mm-hmm. Those are the, you know, it's it's robbing. It, it's committing actual crimes that, while thought were crimes, not being mm-hmm. gay. Okay, yeah. so that scene that takes place, though, in, like, the den in this movie, because we have the guy that's, like, using yes. chalk to draw Dorian on, on the on the table. That's not how it is in the book at all. Well, I was in a modern-day mindset because the sound of the chalk um, scraping on the table sounds mm-hmm. like someone sniffing, and so I was like, is he doing cocaine over there? Yeah, <laughs> and you would be right for thinking so, because the implication is he's doing everything bad mm-hmm. you can think of well in yeah. the book james finds him in an opium den yeah we loved our opium dens at the mm-hmm. turn of the century didn't we <laughs> sure did <laughs> okay we've already jumped around a lot so okay, let's start yeah, at the beginning <laughs> okay so we open with a poem from the rubaiyat by omar Khayyam, and of course it ends with a very sensational line I myself am heaven and hell. So I love this idea that already we're kind of playing with dualities. It's innate. It's in all of us, uh, which is very bisexual. (laughs) So we are in London. It's 1886. And just like the book, we begin with an introduction not to Dorian Gray. We start with Lord Henry Wotton, who is played by George Sanders, as we already said. And we immediately get to learn how he lives his life, or at least the philosophy with which he lives his life. He's all about pleasure. He claims not to have any emotions, and he loves to exert his influence on others. So in short, this man is a huge asshole yeah he sucks i mean he's great he's a fantastic character he's so much fun yes exactly that (laughs) and most women don't take him seriously they're like he's just talk i mean he is a full misogynist oh completely but i think they're also hey it's the voice and look at him it's the voice Mm -hmm. it's the voice and i also just think that they think he's an idiot like he just spouts so much it's kind of funny to like let the guy babble but Dorian still indulges him. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Dorian's a little stupid. But I think he's also still persuasive, right? Like, mm-hmm. he is a lord, so he holds a high title. He's obviously very wealthy. He's a man of leisure. I mean, we never see anyone in this film doing a day's work. Clearly, Basil is maybe the only one, but even that, it seems like he's just doing things he wants to paint as opposed to commissions. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so we open as Henry goes to visit Basil Howard, who is played by Lowell Gilmore, and he really wants to sneak a peek at a mysterious portrait that he is painting. You mean picture? <laughs> yeah, apparently so. <laughs> And Basil really does not want to show it to him. And this, to me, like, the fact that it is not immediately evident to everyone Mm -hmm. that Basil is super duper gay, because it's like, I discovered this man. He's so gorgeous. I had to immediately paint a portrait. And also, I want to keep him all to myself. And I want to keep him pure. I don't want him to meet my worst friend. Who is also clearly a raging homosexual. Yes. No, you don't say. These men are fucking all over the place. And good for them. But I kind of love that you look at Basil and Lord Henry as that heaven and hell sort of version, Mm -hmm. right? Basil doesn't have a mean bone in his body. You even wonder why he puts up with Lord Henry. And Lord Henry is the life of the party, but also the person you love to hate. I think to some degree it's amusement. I don't know that Mm -hmm. he really thinks Henry's all talk. And that's about right. it. Henry's never going to do anything. And also, it's probably good in bed. 
there's there's probably fun there, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because one of them is the Dom and one of them is the sub. I bet you Basil <laughs> is actually the Dom. Right? I, I bet you. That is the way it goes, right? Though yeah. meet people in, re- in like, quote-unquote day-to-day life are, are, are Doms in the bedroom. Exactly. Like, like Henry would tell you he is, but he's not. That's, yeah. that's where he wants you to do all the talking. <laughs> I mean, even when he complains that no woman has ever killed herself for him, you're just like, please, come on, God. sir. We are love and suicide in this movie. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, love is an emotion that will quite literally kill you in this film. Mm-hmm. But we can't show it because that goes against the Hayes Code. Well, there is. Oh, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not decent. It's gross indecency. Is, in it, is it clear my feelings on the on the Hayes Code? Are, are they clear? <laughs> my fiance says that if there were like a bingo board for me the Mm haze code would be the free space yeah just (laughs) no one needs to guess it's gonna come up and i fucking hate it Mm -hmm, exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we finally catch a glimpse of this portrait it is of an incredibly attractive young man named dorian gray and we should note that this is a real painting it was done by an artist named enrique medina and it is called portrait of herd hatfield as dorian gray oh okay mm-hmm. so wait so the the, the the painters of the version we'll see later that's mm-hmm. a different group it is mm-hmm. a different person and apparently that one is the more famous painting yeah that's so, I mean... in a museum um which i've seen it in a museum oh, okay interesting yeah so i think this one was sold in some kind of mgm lot so somebody owns mm-hmm. it somewhere Oh, we should point out, though, that this is a black and white movie, but we do have Technicolor shots, I think four of them, Mm -hmm. of this painting. Mm -hmm. And I think I I knew we were going to get them because I'd read about this before I saw the movie. But I think I underestimated just how effective Mm -hmm. those Technicolor shots are of this painting. It's stunning. It's everything. So I did not know that that was coming. So I thought, you know, cool, settling in for this gorgeous black and white film. Because, you know, when, when we're doing black and white back in the day... It looks good because we know how to light it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you get that Technicolor shot, it is, it is, it's stunning. And this painting is so good, right? I mean, because we commission someone to actually make a portrait of this actor and it is incredibly realistic and convincing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy to understand why people might find the person in the painting to be very gorgeous. But I love the fact that the film makes us wait before we ever get introduced to Dorian. Like we have to meet Lord Henry, then we've got to meet Basil, then we've got to see the painting, and then we finally get to meet the man himself. Actually, do we even meet Child Gladys before that happens? No, she comes in. Yeah. Okay. Which I will say, th- 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 that's weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that we have to meet child Gladys before we meet the adult Gladys. <laughs> yeah, don't like that. But I think part of it is because we need to understand the extent of the time jump. No, I know. I just the romance is weird. I mean, romance. Oh, is it's super quotes. weird. I mean, it's got Twilight written all over. <laughs> it's like, so oh, Gladys yeah. basically imprints, and then she waits until she becomes an adult. <laughs> oh my god! Ew. But yes. <laughs> So, uh, yes, we are introduced finally to Dorian Gray via his piano playing in the other room. And we come in and immediately Lord Henry just latches onto this kid like a leech. It is predatory gay for days. And he's all about espousing this life philosophy. You know, oh, you're so young. You're so beautiful. You just need to live this decadent life. (laughs) 
We should also note uh, that in the scene where he first sees Dorian, Lord Henry often carries a cane in this film, and you can watch the cane raise like an erection. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> gay in this movie. No, Nothing this gay. Is, this is the straightest movie I've ever seen, you guys. <laughs> Super diverse. So straight. straight. <laughs> Okay, so we do have an omniscient narrator that I have not mentioned yet. Uh, he is voiced by Cedric Hardwick. And this narrator confirms that Dorian took Lord Henry's words to heart. And as we are hearing this, we actually do see Lord Henry drown and then pin an exotic butterfly to a plate. And you're just like, mm -hmm. oh, cool. So he collects and also destroys young things by corruption. Good to So know. what do we think of this narrator? Because I... <laughs> I didn't mind him initially, but there are scenes mm -hmm. later, specifically in the climax of the film, when he starts narrating what Dorian is feeling, and yeah. that always gets on my nerves. It's like, no, the acting should do that for me. Yep. Mm -hmm. I feel the same. Yeah, me too. It feels like in parts the narrator is there to do the heavy lifting, and it's it kind of feels like the movie is saying, hey, you're too stupid to understand what's mm -hmm. going on. And But I, I think, and I'm just guessing here, but I'm assuming a lot of the narrator's dialogue is also plucked from the book. And so yes. I wonder yeah. if that's Lewin just being um, a purist. Reverend. I think yeah. that is a lot of what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I, I think if it, it is a, a third person narrator, it's not one of the characters. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. not, you know, voiceover internal monologue, which I, I hate those. Um, yeah. That's one of my biggest gripes actually in, in The Haunting, where I'm like, no, 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 you have a great actress. I see this all on her face. I don't need yeah. to hear it. Let me just watch her. Um, <laughs> but I, I really do think that it it's like, but this book is so good and the language is so good. So I just have to have someone say it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I could see it. Or hear it, rather. <laughs> Okay, so this is when Basil's niece Gladys runs in. She loves Dorian. She wants to marry him. She has no time or patience for Lord Henry. So clearly Gladys is the smartest person in this movie at this very moment. A woman usually is. Mm -hmm. Well, there we go. <laughs> yeah, so this is when we get to see the portrait in color. It's amazing. And Dorian is so taken with it, he admits that he would give his soul for the painting to grow old while he stays young. And of course, Lord Henry is more or less egging him on saying, you know, oh, well, you'll never look as good and this painting will stay mm -hmm. perfect forever. And then we do get this interesting moment where when Dorian says it, he says it in front of a statue of an Egyptian cat, and we're meant to believe that he's basically making a wish on this thing, and it grants it for him. So that cat is not in the book. I was no. going to say, does the book give it? I'm assuming the book doesn't give an explanation, nope. right? It just is. No, it just it is. It just is. Yeah. Like, just, he, it, he sells his soul. Mm -hmm. He wills it into being. This mm -hmm. might be the whole like, oh, the audience is stupid. We have to give them mm -hmm. a reason. What what what's good? So. Oh, Egyptian cat magic. Sure. Totally. People love that cat person movie. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know, cats nine lives. They're they're scary and magical. Sure. sure. Yeah. We love a black cat. Let's just blame a bunch of shit on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so almost immediately, because Dorian has decided to take this advice, this very, very bad advice from <laughs> Lord Henry, 
he enters the low-class bar, The Two Turtles, and this is where we bring the show to a halt, but he will eventually get front-row seats to watch vaudeville singer Sybil Vane, played by Angela Lansbury, perform her very catchy 19th-century song, The Little Yellow Bird. So, um, mm-hmm. fun fact. So this film was playing in 1945 at Piccadilly Circus when the war ended, and oh. the soldiers, they would just like screen movies for all the soldiers, but soldiers didn't really sure. care. But I guess they had snipped this clip of her singing out of the movie and just constantly played it. And so Angela Lansbury would have soldiers or ex-soldiers come up to her for years and being like, oh, my God, I don't know what that movie was. But, like, I've seen you singing (laughs) this clip. Oh, (laughs) wow. Also, what was their confetti budget? (laughs) (laughs) How many takes? A hundred takes with that much confetti? Oh, my God. They had to clean that up in between every Every take. Every time. Even the fact that she has to keep singing as she's basically eating it while he's throwing it in her. Oh, I, boy. I was going to say, she like inha- she probably inhaled one and choked to death. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, she's Red not Angela lip sync. Yeah, she is, she is really, she's live singing that. They're recording that sound in the take. Mm-hmm. This is a fun introduction to a character. I mean, we immediately clock that Dorian should not be in an establishment like this. He is too high class. I love that sort of record scratch moment where the show stops dead for him. And he's just like, hey, everybody, I'm just here to watch a show. <laughs> oh, but I will tell you all that the, the puppet show, I guess it's kind of puppets with like the real human mm-hmm. heads within the puppet bodies. I found yeah. that delightfully entertaining. <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah, it was great. We just saw a drag queen do that on Drag Race. So like, <laughs> cool to see that we're still doing vaudeville in the year of our Lord 2024. <laughs> well, drag is still doing vaudeville. There we go. There we go. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. So another delightful moment is how eager Sybil Vane's parents are to get her the fuck married so that we can get that money flowing because they immediately want to introduce Dorian to her. It apparently takes two weeks before they actually get a face-to-face, but he ends up wooing her by playing Chopin's Prelude. And this is also when we're introduced to her brother, James, who is played by Richard Fraser, And he's a sailor, everybody. Ahoy. So, so he's a slut, and he's probably gay. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I think maybe he's like, you know, the sailors in, in Morris, that kind of sailor. Um, but the, the guy who runs that vaudeville theater bar, that's not her mm-hmm. dad. She doesn't have a dad. It's oh. just the mother. Okay. They name him okay. as like Mr. Something Else. Important to note, though, that James never actually crosses paths with Dorian in this nope. part right. of the film. Yes, he hears him playing, but he doesn't actually catch a glimpse of him. And of course, that will become important later. Or will it? But Actually, he doesn't even know his name is Dorian. He just knows him <laughs> as Sir Tristan. Sir Tristan. In the book, yeah. she calls him Prince Charming. Which probably makes a bit more sense, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's some more references to her being an Ophelia-like um, mm, character yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah, so in the 20 Yeah, so in the 2009 version with Ben Barnes, she actually is playing Ophelia in a performance of Hamlet. She is not a vaudeville performer. Oh, because that's the book, the Shakespearean actress. Mhm. Okay. So James is rough trade, and he clearly understands that his sister is probably being played. So before he ships out, he does ask her, "Who is this young dandy?" Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> lingo lingo and yes uh we understand that he's using a fake name so tristan and sybil is very reassuring she she tells her brother don't worry he's very chivalrous look he bought me this bird 
Mm-hmm. So we cut to a luncheon where Lord Henry, like, is this just what he does at every fucking social function? Yes. Like, hey, everybody, we should be debaucherous and we should give in to our inner id. And uh, also women hate me. I don't understand why. He's that guy that you go to college with and he's kind of entertaining then because he's always talking. And mm-hmm. then you get older and he doesn't change. And you're just, you're like, just like, ooh, oh, God. I'm not entertained <laughs> okay. anymore. I am exhausted. No. This is, I, I, I love his lines, you know, because he has this one here women inspire us with the desire to do masterpieces and prevent us from carrying them out <laughs> like honestly this is going to sound really offensive but he is giving that certain vibe of gay where they just hate women so they make all these misogynistic comments all the fucking time well and that's the thing he goes on you know women represent the triumph of matter over mind just as men represent the triumph of the mind over morals um Mm -hmm. okay is this also the scene where he flambes something because that was really fun yeah i think this is where he pisses off that guy and yeah it's uh, with the the birds like, that do it's, not look it's a good. presentation so this is a parliamentarian we learn yep. named sir thomas who was played by robert grieg and this man is so horrified by what lord henry is saying that he nearly leaves before they serve the first quail of the season the, the first, first quail. quail of the season folks why are those quail still fully feathered it's gross it's who wants so to eat that gross. I like a quail, but I do not care for the feathers. Yeah, I've had quail too, but um, they've usually been cleaned and plucked mm-hmm. before it gets yeah. to me. And also, tell me a gay man didn't write this. I apologize for the intelligence of my remarks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so sassy. This this whole thing is is full of sass and snark. Sass. And that was Oscar so Wilde. Delightful. Yes. <laughs> you could just read the gayness in it. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently some people couldn't. <laughs> it is shocking. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but okay, you know what? To that point, though, I do remember reading it in high school, and there were people in my class who were not picking up on it. And mm-hmm. I would be the student sitting there and going, guys, 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 this is gay. It's really gay. It's, it's really like gay. so gay. And they're like, but, no, it's not. Yes, it is. This is so gay, you guys. <laughs> but that is the sub. I mean, I, I'm going to call it subtext. I'm sure some people might argue it's just actual text, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, it's. Uh, yeah, just read. In the edited version, which is the version that most people read in school, and that's the version that existed when I was in high school, it is more subtextual. It's still very mm-hmm. obvious. Yeah. But if you're reading the 2011 printing, it's not subtext. It is on the text. But you grew up in you grew up in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. See, I'm like me growing up in Texas. I don't know if that would have been something that a lot of my classmates would have actually picked up on oh yeah and even for me it wasn't a lot of my classmates and that is here in new york the people who wanted to pick up on it were picking up on it there we go and if you just didn't think about that you weren't picking up on it no matter how clear it was and i always yeah and i always loved when i'd finally get a teacher who would love to point out how homoerotic books were i had a teacher who (laughs) we did the great gatsby there's the elevator scene and he just stands there and starts moving his hand up and down and goes guys you're going to have to read between the lines in this scene. This is homoerotic. <laughs> like, open your minds. What's just going on here, kids? Aww. And that person then got fired because, you know, they were too good at their job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's still a teacher, actually. Oh, good. Good. It's New York. So when I read this for the Horror Course Book Club, I actually got like an annotated, extremely gigantic hardcover version <gasps> of this. That's the original. That's the, the right one. That's the uncensored. 
Yes. Okay. So I was pretty sure that it was uncensored because it did have some, yeah, some some naughty words and fun mm-hmm. passages and stuff. But it was really helpful because they give you so much historical context. Like, so even certain passages not pertaining to the homosexuality or the vices or anything like that, it would be, you know, oh, this comment is actually about Oscar Wilde's, you know, Mm -hmm. greatest enemy and this is the context that you would need to understand but people in the time would obviously know if you were following the important people of the day so yes that is the uncensored version that you have read okay good to know which is the better version it is a good read it's a hard read though like my brain does not function with that kind of speak so it was Mm -hmm. a bit like reading uh shakespeare back in the day where you're just like okay i need to get into this kind of prose line by line i'm a big reading dork so this was for me i was like ah yes amazing and i'm sure to some degree i was also a little pretentious and like even when i don't understand this obviously i understand this mm-hmm. let me push my glasses up my nose mm-hmm, exactly <laughs> <laughs> and then you, okay. you just you fake it so much and then you eventually do there you go fake it till you make it <laughs> So we're all going to go see Sybil's show because Dorian keeps talking about her and also oopsie slips that they're maybe engaged, even though he does clarify he never explicitly asked her to marry him. She just said that she would be so happy to be his wife. And of course... Lord Henry latches on to this little slipsy. So after we see the show, Basil thinks she's great because Basil is lovely. Lord Henry proposes an experiment. Why don't you invite her over to your house? And when the time comes to say goodnight, ask her to stay. And basically, this is a no-win situation for Sybil. It's a slut test. It's horrible. Yes, you're right, Trace. It is a slut test. Yes, you're right, Ahmed. It is horrible. And it's especially, (laughs) I mean, from what we've seen of Sybil, she's charming. She's a little simple. She thinks that Dorian loves her greatly. And to watch her go to leave and then for him to start playing and basically Mm -hmm. lure her back and she's crying oh you're just like oh this is awful (laughs) i look i i know the single tear shot in movies is so overdone obviously this is happening Mm -hmm. in 1945 but that shot of angel lansbury's like single tear one because it's it's right when he asks her like stay the night Mm -hmm. i also I, i do wonder how many people now would watch this and not really get what the issue was right right yeah Like, basically, throw away your decency to have sex with me, or else. But Mm -hmm. if you you do that, he's going to throw her away, which is what he does! Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a no-win situation. I mm-hmm. I have to wonder what that sex was like. Cold? I mean, probably not good. Yeah, I mean- <laughs> <laughs> brief and not good. Focused not on her pleasure at all. No, but like that's <laughs> uh, again, Sybil isn't much of a role. But again, like what Angela Lansbury brings to this, like I mm-hmm. feel for Sybil in this scene. I-, I feel more for her in this scene than I do when she's actually reading the letter from Dorian before she kills herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to think that people voted her oscar nomination for this scene yes i think so Mm -hmm. we should also note that this movie is meta because uh before he does the experiment we do have dorian reading a poem from a certain very famous author oh oh. little dorian gray ingratiating himself into the film playwright or sorry a little oscar wilde ingratiating himself into the film i laughed my ass off when he was like it's from a a, a poet named oscar wilde and i was like Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
But like yep. 1945, we were doing this in 1945. Yeah, people were clever. Imagine that. But also, this movie at that scene, it's set in like what 1886. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the thing he's reading probably wouldn't have even been written until the 1890s, right? right. <laughs> yeah. It's in the future. So, the script supervisor yeah. was not doing their job on this movie. He is Doctor oh Who. <laughs> he's Doctor Who, but also Trace. I need you to look up the script supervisor so we can drag them because that's what we do on the show now. Yep, we do that. We do do that. Oh no, guys! I work as a script supervisor sometimes. Well, do your job. Did you work on the covenant? I, I did not work on Dorian Gray. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so uh, yes, we cut to the next day, and Dorian's already writing Sybil. Her, you fucked up. I will never speak of you. I will never acknowledge you ever again. Goodbye. It's so mean. Yeah. And then she kills herself. Oh, we should also note he includes money in the letter. So he's effectively oh. paying her yep. for being a whore. Yep. Like. Thank you for awful. sleeping with me. Yeah, this is. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I want to read this letter out. It's not long. He says, I will never see you again. I will never mention your name. I will never think of you. Henceforth, I shall live only for pleasure. Everything else is meaningless. And if this leads me to the destruction of my souls, it is only you who are responsible. Do not try to see me. I shall leave England and not return for a long time. I am sending with this letter a gift of money, which should compensate you for any disappointment you may feel. My real life begins. My own life, in which you cannot possibly have any part. Wow, fuck boy. The idea that he blames her for anything that's going to happen to him. And you're just like, sir, you... Did this you did it. But he, he doesn't. He's just saying this to be cruel. Mm-hmm. He is. Yeah. But this is also the point in the film where I really feel like we almost stop understanding a lot of what is driving Dorian. Like his mm-hmm. decision making just goes off an absolute cliff because he's just living for the pleasure of it. But also, like, even in this moment, I don't know. Is he doing it to just be cruel or is he doing this because he thinks it's what he has to do because of society's norms and i think that might be what makes him make a little more sense in the book is that he is so much more of an immature character mm-hmm. that he is so much more easily swayed whereas the historian almost he feels a little aloof like maybe hey he can stop and think through these actions a little more than book dorian can mm. who has kind of like the mental decision making skills of a teenager. A child. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so this is when the narrator pops back in. And I think, Trace, this is probably the moment you were talking about because I did not care for it. <laughs> we watch Dorian go and see that there has been a change in the portrait. And there's something in the curvature of the mouth. It looks slightly crueler. But we have to have the narrator explain this in just excruciating detail. Prose is lovely, but I don't think we need it. Yeah, this isn't actually, this is the first moment where I was kind of like, ugh. But no, it's definitely like in the climax of the film. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So Dorian feels a little bit of conscience and he says, you know what? No, I acted too rashly. I'm going to write a letter to Sybil and I'm going to, you know, make amends. And this is when Lord Henry walks in and says, hey, guess what? She's already fucking dead. Oh, he, he like comes to apologize, but he's like very insincere about it. Oh, yeah. He oh, 100%. Care. No, no. I mean, because 
we we know this because he follows it up by being like, oh, you're so lucky. No woman has ever killed herself over me. No, you should really look at this as a positive thing. This is a wonderful episode in your life. The way he delivers the news, it's like, oh, hey, um, I talked to your butler. I brought your paper in. Oh, and your girlfriend killed herself last night. You want some dinner? Mm-hmm. He's such yeah. a little shit. Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, look, go out to the theater with me. It'll be a great mm-hmm. night. <laughs> yeah. Don't even give her a second thought. Nope. Don't even give it a moment. And I mean, I will say I really liked the inspired casting of Colin Firth in this role for the 2009 mm-hmm. film. In some ways, I wish he would go a little bit bigger because mm-hmm. they make him a bit of an apologetic figure because Gladys is his daughter in the movie. Gladys is still in that movie? Oh, wow. yeah, no, she gets a way bigger part. She's played by Rebecca Hall as an adult, though. Guess what? I still forget her. Because Sybil's Rachel Hurd Wood, that girl from the Peter Pan movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did actually, I think in the book, Sybil is described as being a redhead, so that does make sense. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, I, I re- so I remember when the 09 movie came out, it was also funny to see Ben Barnes and Colin Firth together because they played father and son in Easy Virtue. <gasps> yeah, I right. love Easy Virtue. <laughs> right, right. It's <laughs> thank you. Okay, no one else has ever seen no, this movie. Okay, no, because it's one of the few. I mean, okay, Jessica Biel obviously mm-hmm. acts, but like that was a big star yes. vehicle for her, and she gives toe to toe with Chris and Scott Thomas in that movie. Mm-hmm. And it's so fun to watch. And the the needle drops in it. Oh yeah. my oh. god, the music. Yeah, because they have a, a rendition of Sex Bomb in mm-hmm. it that played That's in the, the trailer. One. Oh, it's so good. It's um, such a good rendition of the song. Joe, have you never seen it, though? It's basically like I've she never ma- seen it. She's like, you know, a party girl in like, what, the the, 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 the 1910s or something. Oh, I think it's the okay. really early 20s. Okay, there you go. And she marries Ben Barnes, and his dad is Colin Firth, and his mom is uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. And of course, mm-hmm. the, she does not approve of Jessica of Biel because she's a floozy. Mm-hmm. Right. She's a race car driving, flapper, divorced. No. And ben Barnes is younger than she is oh no mm-hmm. scandaloso fun fact it's from the director of the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert <gasps> oh wow okay so hmm. again lots lots to love about that movie and yes i agree it, it is under known <laughs> it is right. I actually i saw a baptist screening of that movie when i was a teenager <sighs> oh interesting okay Hmm. It was it was very fun. Um, it's also a <laughs> remake of a play that was also adapted into a silent film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Oh my god! Wait, what's the silent? Easy. Uh, the silent oh, the film is title? Easy Virtue, nineteen twenty eight, oh. a silent romance yeah. directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it was it was so wild to learn that Hitchcock had started in the silent. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That era. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I appreciate that tangent, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. People are going to go and check the movie out. So you two have done your jobs. <laughs> They're Yay. not going to check out Dorian Gray. They're going to go check out Easy Virtue. <laughs> <laughs> do both. You know do what? both. Do both. Maybe not, not a double the 09. Bite, but <laughs> Not the 09. No. Okay. So Basil comes over in the morning. He is disgusted that Dorian went with Lord Henry to the opera the previous night. But uh, Dorian's pride and his guilt prompt him to feign indifference. And he says he would rather dominate his emotions. To which I say, girl, (laughs) take it down a notch. (laughs) Because even the way he's like, enjoy them, dominate them. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) Sir. (laughs) You're using the word for a future action that is going to come when you're engaging in vices. (laughs) Vices. (laughs) Vices. 
so Basil takes a look and he says, hey, why is my fucking portrait all covered up? Because, of course, that's what Dorian did when he noticed that there were changes happening. And Dorian more or less threatens to end their friendship if Basil doesn't let it go. And at this point, he realizes, oh, I should really move that portrait somewhere where it can't be seen and maybe also fire all of my staff. He keeps firing his staff. Yep. Like, every, mm-hmm. like, it's like It's like a rotation at this house. Oh, yeah. Well, they can never know. They can never know, but also, hey, fuckwit, dum-dum, maybe act like a vampire and leave London instead of kicking around for 18 fucking years and looking the exact same while everybody you know gets old. Yep. It's like you could have gone to America and pretended to be somebody and then come back 20 years later and be like, oh, I'm his son. But he's a narcissist. Like, he wants people to know it's him. Like, look at my good genes, quote unquote. But also, yeah, he could believably still look young for at least a good 10 years. Yeah. But here's the thing. We're about to jump ahead 18 years. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. And, but I guess you're right. That's what, I think Amanda said this. That that's like that's why having Gladys from child to Donna Reed is so important to be like, oh, this is the passage of time. Stupid character. <laughs> Useless character. Apparently in 09, you're right, they did make her Henry's daughter. They renamed her Emily. Because Henry has no queer coding at all. That movie somehow is both more gay and more bi, and yet also it's been desexualized in nearly every conceivable way. It's very yes, odd. It, I remember going in thinking, okay, they can actually like use the queer subtext yeah, and, they can and be go sexy. with it. And I was expecting, you know, some... Henry and Dorian action. Oh, no. Mm-mm. Nothing. And I was so disappointed. It's like, um. It's 2024. We, let's do it. Let's make a gay Dorian Gray. Like, really go for it. Yeah. The most we get in that film is Basil goes down on him and yep. Ben Barnes kisses a couple of guys. And yet it's somehow not that sexy. It's not sexy at all. No. Oh, that's weird. It, yeah. yeah, it just. And I think part of it is that. It is devoid of the emotion that the actual (laughs) story has. And don't get me wrong, sex that's not emotional can be super sexy, but it doesn't have the emotional arc between Basil and Dorian that it needs to really pull your heartstrings. It honestly feels like an adaptation where they said, wouldn't it be scary if a man could live forever in the portrait ages and then forgot, oh, that's actually not the most interesting part of the story. Um, would y'all be surprised to know that the guy that directed Dorian Gray also directed that Reese Witherspoon Importance of Being Earnest? Oh, Oliver Parker, same guy. He actually started as an actor in Hellraiser 1, 2, and Nightbreed. I love Hellraiser. (laughs) (laughs) I love Hellraiser 1. (laughs) Of course, who doesn't? So many people. (laughs) Well, those people are fucking wrong. I agree. I completely agree. That movie is is scary and gross and kinky all at the same time, and I love it. So good. So good. So good. <laughs> so, yes, 18 years have passed, and we hear about how Dorian, there are, there are whispers and uh, rumors that have begun to circulate about his mode of life, and we will never get to see it. So this is the extent that we will get is that, you know, we hear that people who were once friends of his now shun him, women pale in the face when he enters a room, and it's meant to be, ooh, think of all the worst things you could possibly think of someone doing, and that is what Dorian has been up to. So, gay stuff. Gay stuff! Drug stuff, <laughs> murder stuff. Drugs, murder murders, stuff. yeah. I mean, yeah. basically the way the, pa- the portrait will look, um, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look around the mouth, there might be some syphilis stuff going on. Mm-hmm. 
the timing is appropriate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so enter adult Gladys, now played, as we have alluded to, by Donna Reed. And here's the thing. She is a great-looking woman. I mm-hmm. think she is doing what she can in an absolutely nothing role. The problem is that the the movie seems to know, oh, this character is quite literally a beard. Well, not quite literally, mm-hmm. but yeah. in the gay sense, yeah. in the queer sense, she is a beard for this character. And it's like it knows it needs a female lead to get by the censors, but then mm-hmm. also doesn't want to give her anything to do. Nope. And then she gets that, like, boring boyfriend. Oh, my God. I love her boring boyfriend, though. <laughs> oh, my God. David Stone. I, he, uh-huh. Every time I wrote his name in my notes, I did the full David Stone. David, David Stone, Stone does this. It's, David Stone does that. It's a full so name modern. name. You can't just say David. It has to be David Stone. it's so modern. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, and this is IMDb trivia, so take it with a grain of salt, but apparently Donna Reed was offered the role, or promised the role of Sybil Vane. Oh. And did not get it because of Angela Lansbury. And so she was not happy being in this movie because she didn't want to play this role. I don't blame her. Sure. This role is nothing. Well, yeah. but again, like, I mean, I, I, again, Sybil has more to work with. Like, that is the better role between the two women. Mm-hmm. But neither one of these roles is particularly good. No. Not in terms of, like, screen time or arcs or anything. I mean, I guess you well, would look at this there? and say, well, I, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's exciting to be part of an ensemble in a prestige oh. film made by MGM. It's an honor just to be nominated. And Sybil Vane is also a famous <laughs> character from a famous book. It's like, oh, right. who's Gladys in the book? Mm. Oh, you know, there is a Gladys actually <laughs> in the true. book in is one there? scene. Yeah, oh. she's in one scene and she flirts with Dorian and she's married to some lord and that's it. Right. Yeah. Gladys. It's like if you look <laughs> up the book characters, you've got your primary characters, your supporting characters, and it's like the one scene minor characters and that's where she is. <laughs> right. It's good to be Gladys. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we should note that she is still madly in love with Dorian. He, of course, does not give two fucks about her. But this makes Basil very uncomfortable because even though he still is kind of friends with Dorian, he is very well aware of the rumors and he doesn't want his niece to be going anywhere near this guy. Straightening the plot. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So when she decides that she's had enough, Gladys reveals she's going to ask Dorian to marry her. She's not going to wait for him anymore, and she's going to do it at this party tonight. And she does this. I love how much she does not care about David Stone, who is played by Peter Lawford, because she says this as he's entering a room and doesn't even apologize. (laughs) Yep. It's okay. He thinks Dorian is the devil anyway. It's fine. Another character who does not exist in the book. Well, and you can tell just as much, right? You can though. You can totally tell that they didn't that they just shoehorn these people in here. And you're like, mm-hmm. who are they? We need conflict. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have this party at Dorian's um it's uncomfortable because we're mm-hmm. basically just we've got exotic performers and you're like exotic in quotation marks. Could have done something else. It's what we did back in those days. Yeah. So Gladys does eventually manage to get Dorian into a room by herself, and he he takes pity on her, right? He he basically says, I don't love you. This isn't going to happen. And when he leaves, he happens to spot David Stone lurking about in uh, the door to his old workroom as a child, a.k.a where the portrait is being kept. It's a really good idea if you're going to have a room in your house that you're going to keep locked and hide from everyone at all times. Um, Go the Beauty and the Beast route. Put it in the West Wing. Don't put it like right in the front door. 
Mm-hmm. I always wonder, um, Beauty and the Beast, if they chose the West, because obviously the West Wing is is a Disney thing. Yeah, that's right. not from the original. If they did that, because that's where um, Rebecca's room is. In <gasps> it, yeah, it's the West Wing. That's where her where quarters secrets. are. That yeah. <laughs> I would actually believe that if that were true. I, but I nevertheless, think that would be why they did it. <laughs> when you walk into this house, you see <laughs> that door, top of the stairs, <laughs> it's right there. I mean, or you like you put it somewhere random. So it's like you're hiding it in plain sight. You know, put right. another painting over it. Like, is there not an attic? I mean, this this seems tantamount to an attic, but it it is a bit wild. Like, the way that David is actively trying to not break down the door, but he is actively trying to open this locked door. Right. And when we get long shots or even extreme long shots of this house, because it is opulent and house porn of the 1940s, it is filled with interesting objects to look at. So I was like, is David Stone just literally working his way through this entire house to try to find dirt on this guy? I think <laughs> I mean, so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's Nancy Drewing his way through it. Oh my God, he totally is. I can't believe he <laughs> doesn't die in this movie. I know. Right? An opportunity to kill someone in this movie. <laughs> it's because he's not a real character, so he is he has plot armor. Well, right. Okay. Yes. There, there are, I want to say, four deaths in this movie, and three of them are suicides. Is it three? Well, but I, so uh, uh, Sybil, I'm counting Dorian's as a suicide. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, that Andrew guy who he blackmails right. to, to hide Basil. Alan, there you go. Yes. And yeah. then there's, oh, there's also James and there's Basil. Well, Basil's murdered. Mm-hmm. J- who's James? James Bain. He dies? Sybil's brother. He gets, yeah, he gets shot. He gets oh, shot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, he does. Okay, I'm sorry. He dies. But it's because it happens off screen, so it's really easy to forget. <laughs> anyway, we're not there I mean, there that's yet. actually how he dies in the book, so. Yeah. Right. So it's the eve of Dorian's 38th birthday. We should note he still looks 20 or 22. And Basil invites himself over. There's a thick fog. Basil unwisely announces that he's due on a trip to Paris that night. No one knows that he is going to see Dorian. So when he invites himself in, he talks about all of the charges and rumors about him. I do love the fact that all of the things that Basil lists are men who were driven mm-hmm. to die by suicide or they met some untimely end. And you're just like, hmm, what has Dorian been up to? Yeah, what's been going on? Buggery. <laughs> Buggery. <laughs> so Dorian ends up saying, you know what? If you want to see my soul, let me show it to you. So he brings him up to the locked room we get to see the portrait and we should note this is when we get to see it in technicolor again and uh the painting is called picture of dorian gray it is by ivan lorraine albright and as you mentioned earlier amanda this one is actually publicly available to see it's hanging up in an art gallery Mm -hmm. and these albright twins because it was a it was a twins that did this painting but they were known as the masters of the macabre because they painted things yes. like this yes mm. it is grotesque it is fantastic it the is. Review, honestly the fact that it's in color helps so much there's so much more oh, like yeah. blue and purple hues in this than i was expecting um mm-hmm. makes it more sickly it's almost a jump scare honestly mm-hmm. it is yeah because you you know it's going to be bad but i always just thought oh it's going to be him as an aged man 
I didn't think it was going to be, yeah, as you said, Amanda, you know, oh, we've got leprosy in here. Mm -hmm. We've got some syphilis. We've just, it's really putrid and disgusting. Not going to lie, Trace, it made me think of the roommate from two weeks ago where I was just like, oh man, wouldn't it have been great if Leighton Meester's favorite artist was this? Yes. (laughs) That would have made it more interesting. (laughs) Oh boy, that's that's a movie that does not need to get me. No. But that's also something that I remember when it came out. I was like, oh, this looks queer, mm-hmm. but it looks real bad. <laughs> Again, it's yep. not, I mean, it's bad, but it's mm-hmm. also boring. Yeah. yeah, it is boring. Okay, so he is caught up in his hatred. Dorian ends up stabbing poor Basil, and we get this fantastic swinging light as we're oh. seeing it across the yes. portrait. That is gorgeous. Amazing. The fact, so we, uh, Amanda, we covered Reanimator last week, and Mm -hmm. that also has a really standout set piece involving a swinging light. So the fact that Mm -hmm. we just happen to program these two films one after the other is great. But yeah, I am, I'm starting to really get a kink for this swinging light set piece. It's such a fun way to shoot a scene. I loved this shot. Mm -hmm. I, I, this was my favorite shot. I, when that happened, I was just like, yes. But yeah. also at this scene, because this is where he sees it and then starts talking about, oh, no, Gladys can never know. I could not help but roll <laughs> my eyes because this, you know, it, it should be the emotional crux of how deeply I am in love with you. And I have mm-hmm. seen what you have become. And yes. Like, oh, no, my niece. Your niece. <laughs> <care about> her. <laughs> and you almost wish that they had delivered it totally flat tone. Oh no, Gladys can never see okay. this portrait. So wait, does this play better in the 2009 one? Is that something maybe that version improves? No. Oh, okay. no. No, I would say the most interesting thing that they do is that the portrait has a three-dimensional quality to it, so it mm-hmm. actually expels bugs. Oh. So like there's maggots that fall out of it when we look at it and stuff. Yeah. I will accept that. It's not bad, except then we also had to do like, the portrait actually fully comes out at one point and it yes. looks real bad. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the remake of Rebecca. Just like, mm. ah, this isn't improving. No. <laughs> oh my God, that remake of Rebecca. <laughs> we covered it on Patreon, folks. And let me tell you, that was a stretch of an episode because we were just like, this is awful. How do we talk <laughs> yes. about it for 50 minutes? <laughs> I, I have listened and, and read Wealth of Year takes on that because i read all of nasty takes on that <laughs> it's just like how do you give this to ben wheatley and then he delivers this milk-a-toast version Ugh. also the fact that they're the same age really screws it up like the age gap is mm-hmm. important, important in that story it is re- it <sighs> is intrinsic to the story and like there's nothing simple about lily james she's She's not right for that part. No, she isn't. And I, I mean, I don't even get me started on Countable Army Hammer. I mean, I also think it misuses Kristen Scott Thomas, who has a mm-hmm. delicious role, and it's just not. I mean, oh god, her, oh god. Well, and that movie is also dequeered. Completely. Yes. Why are we dequeering that shit? Why? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes no sense. Hello, Ugh. we're going the wrong way. Going also, the wrong Daphne way. Daphne Du Maurier was queer, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. I have read her memoir. It is very queer. Oh, yeah. Ooh. I mean, that's the thing. These these historical queers, they were living their best lives when they weren't totally sad and dying by suicide. <laughs> well, see, she doesn't even admit it in her memoir, but you can really, when she starts talking about certain things in regards mm-hmm. to romance and gender identity, yep. you can really easily read like, uh-huh, mm-hmm. yeah, 
Mm-hmm. I, I get this. I see you. I see what you're up to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Basil is totally dead, but thankfully his trip to Paris is going to provide a good cover. Dorian fakes an entrance so that he's got an alibi with his butler, which I kind of <laughs> loved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he writes a letter that basically blackmails a former lover, Alan Campbell, who is played in one scene by Douglas Walton. Basically, he's just like, hey, I've got a wife. I don't want to do this. And Dorian says, ooh, will you really need to or else I have another letter. Okay, so it's it's like the, the scenes in movies whenever someone is given a job offer, like a ransom, and they don't say the amount. They just write it down and don't show the mm-hmm. audience. That's yep. what this is. But, like, how do you watch this and not think he's writing, yo, I fucked your husband? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> But in 1945, it's so exciting. I I had someone do a sketch of it. There's evidence. (laughs) 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 I don't know. But, you know, now we have photographic evidence. I feel like like, yeah, I had someone in the corner, like, drawing it out. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? My kink was having a third person sitting in the corner. They drew this act of buggery, and I'm going to send it to your wife. Well, because the the artist was the cuck. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where it's like, I I know that you have a a weird, like, birthmark next to your your groin. How would I know that unless I've seen it intimately? Look, everyone knows he's got that half crescent on the upper butt cheek. Exactly. This man will go on to kill himself after he has helped Dorian, which Mm -hmm. leads – the implication there is he's so horror-struck by what he's done, he wants to kill Mm -hmm. himself. But I'm just kind of like, I feel like you would just kill yourself after this letter if that's the case. Like, then don't help Dorian out. Well, I think partially in the moment you say, I will do what I need to to keep my secret. But then Mm -hmm. you can't live with it after you've done it. Because his his secret still stays a secret. And I think Mm -hmm. in this time period, in his mind, it was better to not get found out for that, which obviously now it's 2024. And we're like, God damn it, homophobia. Mm -hmm. Fuck Mm -hmm. all that shit. It's a real kick in the pants, that one. Yeah. And that's that's really what it was. That that was something you could legitimately face prison time for. You, oh yeah, if you yeah. Lo- you could lose your status. It um, I don't know if you. I'm sure you guys have seen Morris, but obviously, like semi similar time period, there is another very upper upper crust guy who gets arrested trying to solicit male lovers and Mm -hmm. that was you know based on a real guy that ian forster knew who that happened to who lost his position and went on to commit suicide it's so wild that we talk about the grounds that queer people have made you know in all this time right but we still hear about people being bullied until they Mm -hmm. die by suicide because they can't bear to live in the world as a queer person because they don't want that for themselves and you're just like God, we have not made enough progress. Like, you know, we look at these texts and we think, that's wild that Dorian could blackmail this dude and then he would still rather die than risk having the secret come out. And then you think, oh, yeah, no, that doesn't feel removed from our contemporary reality at all. I was going to say, like, like yeah. d- depending on where you live, that this could very well still happen today. And mm-hmm. absolutely. That's shocking. The difference is that, as you suggested, Amanda, it's, yeah, somebody took a video of you kissing a boy or yeah. making out with a girl at a party or something, and you can't do it. And yeah. I mean, there's an entire French film that that is the premise of it. And, it, it, and one of the criticisms it got was it came out and I think – around 2011 so a lot of people are like oh but it's france in 2011 like 
they they and then it was like yes but this isn't the city this is a much more rural community well also your ignorance is showing if you think that that doesn't still happen Mm -hmm. today anywhere Sorry, that Debbie downered the mood a big time. Segway to something more lighthearted. <laughs> well, it is. It's from history, so. I think it was just that this scene, I don't think the movie realizes how impactful it is. But as a queer person, when you watch this, you think, mm-hmm. this is a character we've never met before. We've never referenced before. We find out that he dies later in a casual remark like, hey, Alan died by suicide. Okay. But it rings heavy over the back part of the film because you start to get a sense of, oh, it's not just Dorian's actions, but he is really starting to pile up the bodies here. He's destroying people's lives. He's making these men fall in love with him. And by confirming to them that like, hey, I swing that way too. Like, I'm into you. And then using that against them. Yeah. He's become his own predatory gay, I guess. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Do you think he's a predatory gay or do you think he's a predatory bisexual? It, it is interesting. It's predatory right? queer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the same way, yeah. right? It's tricky because I don't get a sense that he loves women in this I don't film. either. The 2009 version wants to make it very clear that he is a raging bisexual. Like, he will just fuck anything. Because he's a he's sexual just, omnivore. Yeah, he'll do whatever because he's just in the pursuit of pleasure. This one very much feels like... I'm doing the love that dare not speak its name. Well, that's the uh, the women stuff here all feel like formalities to him. Yeah. And that's how the book comes off too. But that makes sense for the period, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the thing that doesn't work about that 2009 version, one of many things, but it's still a period piece. And it just, it doesn't feel as authentic because even if you were succumbing to this life and you didn't really care about aging, you would still care about your reputation. So it would be things that are happening behind closed doors. Yeah, that's true. That movie is like orgy, orgy, orgy. Mm-hmm. Like, what? This, that's <laughs> no. like, this isn't the Marquis de Sade. Right. That's how it plays too. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Now I just want to go back and watch Quills. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> So we hop over to Lady Harborough's dinner party. She is played by Anita Sharp Bolster. And, you know, we're sitting around the table thinking, hey, Dorian, you are an eligible bachelor and have been for decades at this point. You should really marry. And almost as though things are catching up to him or he thinks, "Ooh, my cover's kind of getting blown here. He just proposes to Gladys right while David Stone is sitting next to mm-hmm. there. This is the most unceremonious, unromantic proposal I have ever seen. It's mm-hmm. terrible. And it's all for show. Like Just so yeah. people can see show. him do it. Yeah, like, oh, you're going to call me out on it? Fine. Hey, lady, let's get married. Hey, lady who's loved me since she was six. Honestly, he's a groomer. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Definitely. <laughs> terrible. He's an opportunist at the very minimum. <laughs> Okay, so Basil has not been found, but his disappearance is raising red flags at Scotland Yard, as well as with Sir Robert. This is when we find out that Alan Campbell has died by suicide. We do get this very self-aware line, how rarely we truly know what goes on inside a man. I was like, hmm, there's a double entendre there. (laughs) Oh, inside a man? I know what goes Mm -hmm. on inside a man. (laughs) (laughs) So... Dorian heads back to the bad part of town. This is where, hey, everybody, remember James, Sybil's brother, the sailor? 
He's you back in the don't. movie. But no, that's the thing. Yes, Amanda, you're right. Like, I honestly, if I wasn't like taking very strict notes, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't have realized this is who this was until like he actually tells us. Because also remember, it's been 20 years. When you the mm-hmm. first time you meet him, he's supposed to be 16. He looks exactly <laughs> the same. I will say they don't do a good job of making it clear that people have age. So obviously Dorian remains pitch perfect and gorgeous and everybody else kind of looks like they maybe traded out a wig or something. Yeah, I was like, Sanders, I think, has like a streak of gray on the sides of his hair. They do a Mm -hmm. little more for Basil, but yeah, they do nothing for Henry. And like, everyone Mm -hmm. else looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a struggle in 45 the makeup wasn't maybe quite as good hey wizard of oz already came out granted that was all, all right. toxic we, we so. got no excuse then <laughs> <laughs> so james has been looking for sir tristan this whole time but he hasn't been able to find him because he doesn't know what he looks like but then he overhears a drunk maybe friend. I couldn't remember if we had met this character, Adrian, before, no. but he is played by Morton Lowry. And he overhears Adrian refer to Dorian as Sir Tristan. So he follows him out to the alley. He tries to rough him up. But of course, Dorian has this easy get out of jail free card. Look at my face. I'm 22 years old. I can't be the guy you're looking for. And he buys it. Mm-hmm. He does well. He sort of buys it. Yeah. I mean, he he ends up on the same train as Dorian and Lord Henry when they're going out to Selby, which is one. Well, that's of the when he knows estates. it really is him. Yeah, but he had to be suspicious enough to either follow him, or it's just a coincidence that they're on the same train, right? No, he's following him because by then Adrian okay. has told him that's the same guy. He's looked twenty two for twenty years. Right. His name's Dorian Gray. Okay. Oh, I love. There we go. Like the drama of just like writing dorian gray on the wall in chalk Mm -hmm. (laughs) yep (laughs) the gravitas (laughs) i was gonna say flair for the dramatics in the book what happens is he finds dorian in an opium den confronts him Ah, dorian pulls the same i'm 22 i couldn't be that Mm -hmm. guy and he lets him leave and then a woman who was in the opium den comes up and she says why did you let him go don't you know that is the same man he has never aged But of course, that's the version of the book that was in mass printing because James is not in the original. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem, right? James exists as a character to exert a certain amount of conflict to make Mm -hmm. Dorian feel a little bit worse about himself. Because, of course, he he gets shot unceremoniously off screen in the very next scene when we're out at Selby, you know, shooting, hunting game and whatever. And this apparently is meant to be the straw that breaks Dorian's camelback because (laughs) he just goes back to London and this instigates the whole last sort of climax of the film. And I don't, I don't buy it. I I don't either. Given everything that has happened before this, that this Mm -hmm. is the the, the proverbial straw. (laughs) I think what it is, is because when that first printing came out, even in the magazine, there were still a lot of, of complaints of, buggery um and so when he did extend the novel he extended sybil vane's part even more Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so then by bringing james back it brings it back to her to make her Uh, more of a important part of dorian's life to almost make it like see it's the straight romance that's really the important thing don't look at basil don't look at henry (laughs) clearly sybil's important like it was his attempt 
at at kind of smoothing it up. over mm-hmm, yeah. some of the more homoerotic elements and that's okay. yeah i haven't said this but i think sybil vane is like one of my favorite character names that i've ever heard in my life oh it's, it's amazing. great it's so uh musical right yeah like it, it rolls off the tongue very pleasantly mm-hmm. you know it doesn't <laughs> gladys halward <laughs> <laughs> no offense to anyone named gladys but gladys does not has never rolled off the tongue <laughs> It's just also very weird because Gladys feels like such an old name. So when we're introduced yes. to her and she's a six-year-old child, you just think, oh, is that a child with like Kajiria? <laughs> That's like that Kimmy Schmidt episode where it's like, you have a baby named Linda. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. <laughs> old names for young kids. Yep. <laughs> Ruth. Yeah. So Dorian, yeah, makes a hasty retreat back to London. Of course, uh, <laughs> everyone, including Gladys and Lord Henry, are very uncertain like hey what the fuck is going on uh okay i guess we'll follow him back but yeah i mean basically david has been digging up dirt as well so this is where he spills the news oh you know it's something to do with the portrait i think hey gladys didn't your uncle paint this or something and so yeah let's race to the conclusion so Dorian decides that he's going to change. So he's going to destroy the painting. He's going to grow old. Things are going to get better. Question mark. Uh, well, so we see the lamp swinging again. So we know something's about to go down and he stabs the portrait in the heart and it starts to morph back into its original form as we hear Dorian praying off screen. And then, of course, The others burst in. We discover that Dorian has died, but his face now looks horribly disfigured. And the portrait is pristine and perfect again. All right. Couple things. Mm -hmm. Um, This climax is fine. If we didn't. It's underwhelming. Well, Mm -hmm. if if we didn't have the reveal of his face, which is fucking awesome. It's funny. uh, If y'all haven't seen this movie, the way that it looks is like Christopher Walken's electrocuted skeleton from Batman Returns. Um, (laughs) But but the one part of the climax that I think is deserved is at least we get Henry walking in, looking at Dorian and going, heaven forgive me. Like the first Mm. sign of remorse he has shown in this. So honestly, his arc is more interesting in this movie to me than Dorian's. (laughs) Right. I I do like them adding Henry there because in the book, it's not any it's it's his servants. Who mm-hmm, hear right. they hear a scream and have to break down the door, and when okay. they get in, they see this like disfigured, terrible looking old man. Right, don't even recognize him. Right, and they see the portrait the way that to them it's always been because they don't know it's been changing, mm-hmm. and they realize it's Dorian because they can see he wears these specific rings on his finger, right. and they see them on the hand of the old man, and they're like. Oh, oh, but, but, but you're right, Joe. I do think this is a pretty underwhelming finale. I mean, again, having not read the book, but just the way this is staged and like set up, I, I'm not like excited when we're doing this, you know? Yeah. But I do think the makeup work on that or, or, or maybe practical dummy work on, on his face is fantastic. See, they did the makeup there. That's as we just said it, I realized, oh, maybe we just had to save all of our money for this because in a way this is the money shot, right? That and the confetti. Yeah, the confetti. The confetti budget was off the charts. charts. (laughs) (laughs) But I I kind of wanted to close this with a bit of a conversation about the two of you, because I was really thinking, what is the lesson of this film because in some ways Mm. this reads a bit like internalized homophobia from Mm -hmm. wild and then the film de-queers it but also like 
I was surprised that Breen and the censorship board came down heavy on the film because in a way, the whole moral message of the movie and the book is, hey, like either don't be queer or don't give in to your impulses. Oh, I thought it was going to be don't be an asshole. <laughs> well, it's also a bit of that. Yeah. Well, I think it's actually more the the fear of facing consequences for being found out for being gay in that mm. time period. Okay. You know, Dorian's an opportunist. So Right. Sure, do I think he probably is gay? Yeah, I think he's, you know, talented Mr. Ripley. But he's also, aside from that, a horrible person. And I, I think this is kind of actually to the movie's disservice to the story is how it changes the Basil character because he is such a, like, paragon of goodness. And Mm -hmm. he is the most explicitly queer character in the book. Well, and here's a little anecdote from Oscar Wilde where he said he wanted to be like Dorian Gray. People viewed him as Henry, Mm -hmm. but he actually Mm. was Basil. Basil, Mm -hmm. yeah. Because Henry talks a lot, so like, oh, obviously it's Oscar Wilde. They, you know, they just assume that. But right. I think that says, I mean, because again, like, as much as we talked about Basil, like, he is the, 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 the I would argue, maybe a more tragic figure than Dorian Gray in this I think film. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think for to have Oscar Wilde say that he identifies the most with Basil in this story, like, that's, that's, I don't, I don't know what that is. Sad, interesting. Uh, <laughs> really interesting parallel to his own life, if you think about the fact that Dorian looks like, his actual mm-hmm. lover. Yeah, and yeah. That is why it led to him getting imprisoned. That is mm-hmm. what led to his downfall. His love yeah. of Dorian Gray. I mean, it's it's meant to be a tragedy, right? With yeah. a mm-hmm. bit of a, a lesson imbued upon it. But I guess yeah, no, I I prefer your reading, Amanda, because mine was <laughs> deeply cynical. Like when I finished this, I thought oh boy, this really feels like the message was, ooh, don't do it because it can only lead to your downfall. But I think part of it is more be a Basil and Mm -hmm. hopefully things will turn out better for you. But if you're going to go down this road, like don't be a Lord Henry and don't be Mm -hmm. a Dorian. Well, that's the thing because I mean, like clearly Oscar Wilde wasn't ashamed of his sexuality. No. So why would he impart some kind of negative message about that into this book, you know? Mm-hmm. I also think when you're a writer, you tend to, like, you write what you want to write, you write what you know. I always realize that when I'm when I'm writing a script, generally, most of my characters fall somewhere on the queer spectrum, whether they're good characters or bad characters. Mm-hmm. They just mm-hmm. do because that's my world. You right. know, so many of my friends are queer, and I'm just like, I don't feel like writing a bunch of straight people. <laughs> We've got so many of them anyway. Right. I think that's also part of it is like he's coming from the point of view of a gay writer, so he's just like, yeah, queer people. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's these are my circles, so sure. Right. It does make sense, right? You look at the text, and folks, if you have not read the book, we cannot underplay just how freaking queer all of these people are <laughs> like it it feels like oh yeah this is the circle i run in all of mm-hmm. my my gay brunch crowd <laughs> so it's like what if a pariah came into that crowd right well i also think i mean i'm sorry i'm going back to this like lesson here but like let, let's say the lesson is like don't do this like don't, don't mm-hmm. be gay like don't, don't don't indulge in sin like that maybe that is oscar wilde working through his own issues Mm-hmm. Like, it, 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 it's maybe the lesson for Dorian, but it's like, I, I don't I don't know. Like, it's maybe he wasn't thinking, oh, like what, what lesson am I teaching my readers in this book? It's just him working through some shit. 
Possibly. In, yeah. yeah, internalized fear, internalized homophobia. It could totally be that. Yeah. But anyway. Well, okay. So, everyone, that is the picture of Dorian Gray. And Amanda, um, as the guest of honor, any final thoughts on this film? I'm glad I did finally watch it. Um, as I said, go. I yeah, I had held off just because I knew they had had to make it less queer because mm-hmm. it was a movie from 1945. Hayes Code, mm-hmm. you guys. Damn, damn old Hayes Code. And that kind of turned me away from wanting to watch it. And it was hard when I was watching it thinking about, oh, but in the book. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just kind of had to stop and say, okay, just, just appreciate. Yeah. Just appreciate this. Meet it where it is. And then you could talk about the book again later. Right. Well, as someone who, again, who has not read this book, I can lament the fact that there is not explicit queerness in this and that we are straightifying it. But taking for what it is and not not taking in like what it should be. Mm-hmm. Even at that, I like this movie. I don't love it. Um, mm-hmm. But it really is because, yeah, this the Gladys character is superfluous it's an ill-advised addition to this movie right. um and i think it killed there is some pacing issues because of this hour and 50 minute running time but again yes. i think it's solid definitely seek it out it's worth it just for those technicolor shots alone and that big reveal at the end but it's solid yeah i mean it's fun to revisit a film from a completely different time period because this you know yeah we talked about the pacing issues and some of the character choices and even i think some of the the storytelling decisions but this is also how we did movies back then like this is partially a contemporary point of view where we're looking at it and saying oh why don't they expedite why don't they trim it up and make it a faster paced film and it's like oh because we didn't do that in 45 so in some ways, it's good to be reminded, oh, hey, uh, park your ADHD for a hot moment and just try to enjoy the two-hour movie. I actually think that's because of the book, that they really want to try to yeah. fit as much of the book in as they can. Because mm-hmm. I, I do watch a lot of old movies, so I know I hear the pacing thing all the time, and I don't actually agree with that. I think there are so many old movies that are they, – they move. Like they, mm-hmm. I watched The Third Man the other night, and that goes boom, boom, boom. Um, but um, that's I think Orson Welles, right? Yeah, yeah he didn't direct it. He's in it. Um, ah. it. He does get misattributed to him directing it very oh, frequently. That's my bad, then. Directed by Carol Reed, uh, a man, mm-hmm. man, Carol Reed, yes. not a woman, a right. dude named Carol. Yeah, dude. Named um, Carol. <laughs> I, I think a lot of the runtime is because they want to fit as much of the book in. That would make sense, right? Given what we know about the director, this was a passion project, so mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah, look at Gone with the Wind. That movie's a hundred hours Ooh. long. <laughs> all this to say yeah i'm in agreement with you trace i think this is worth checking out it was fun because i didn't really even know much about the film and it's just nice to do something a little different <laughs> i agree but okay so before we announce that we're covering next week amanda thank you so much for coming on to this and bringing a wealth of knowledge about mm-hmm. this material <laughs> Thank you for having me. No, when you sent the email, hey, we're doing Dorian Gray. Is that still okay with you? I was I was in Trader <laughs> Joe's with my fiance and I was like, oh, they're doing Dorian Gray instead. He's like, yeah, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> you got those. <laughs> that, like the stars aligned. I'm so happy. But, but let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Yeah, so I am on Twitter. I'm still calling it that. Um, yep. Instagram. I have a TikTok. I haven't posted in a while, but when I do post, I usually post ghost stories at amanda jane stern that's that's my handle i have a public facebook page as well that you can interact with that is at the same handle uh so at amanda jane stern for everything all right 
Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you love us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you will get 286 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on Hannibal Season 1, Episode 2, No Way Up, Suitable Flesh, Lisa Frankenstein, and to coincide with the new Diablo Cody film, our audio commentary for the month will be on Heathers, the ultimate yes. classic. <laughs> but Joe, mm-hmm. we will not be covering a classic next week. Um, well, well, classic I to like some. It. I like <laughs> it. Uh, what are we discussing? <laughs> uh, yes, we are jumping ahead far into the future. We're actually going to spend the rest of the month in the 2000s Ooh. and above. It's also a bit of an odd choice because, of course, it's not a Friday the 13th, but it is the 15th anniversary of Friday the 13th the remake oh boy i really like this movie but i love how like some people fucking hate it and oh yeah Mm. i find that very fascinating (laughs) yeah it's a bit polarizing but i'm mostly just excited to talk about the four movies in one opener oh my god the opening is so good but yes um, anyway (laughs) until next week everyone we can cross out the picture of dorian gray indeed and cross out horror queers Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.